Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We need your support. The Tortoise Shack relies entirely on you to keep the show on the road, mics on, lights on and conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. The simplest way to do that is to click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is at the top of the pod right now. So while you're listening, give us the 90 seconds it'll take you to click in, find the level that suits your budget and help keep this show on the road. It is the easiest bit of activism you can do and you'll get a ton of additional content including lots of exclusives, all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed and they're entirely plea free. So not only will you be helping keeping these microphones on, you'll be giving yourself the gift of not having to listen to me beg, but beg I must. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and folks, we've decided that we were going to try and do a Sunday show for you guys, but it kind of all, the wheels all kind of came off. Uh, but luckily, my uh, my good friend and Mr. Poles, Mr. Election Projection uh, himself, Harry McEvan Sonia stepped up to the plate. Uh, Harry, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to see you and we have plenty to talk about. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, you know, it's good to know that I'm doing nothing on a Saturday, apparently. So <laughs> you. Uh, no, fantastic to be here as ever. Thanks for having me on, Tony. No, you've been doing some really interesting analysis, and we will get to that um, really quickly. But before we do, I just want to mention a few things that you might not have seen during the week. Um, uh, Senator Tom Clonan made an impassioned speech in the Shannon, which actually meant the Shannon was suspended. That's a rarity. You don't often see the Shannon suspended. Uh, and he challenged um, Stephen Donnelly over the way they've, the treatment of carers, the upcoming referendum, and indeed, the um, it was more so to do with people waiting on care whereby we've seen one one child has now been left permanently disabled because the surgery came too late and there are risks to other people's quality of life clearly i think the tom was talking about specific over 150 cases of children who are probably now young adults waiting that long on care and i thought it was outrageous that stephen donnelly came out that night at ten at the you know, 20 to 11 that night and started tweeting at Tom Clonan um, to put him in his box. Great look for the Minister for Health. Absolutely fabulous. What do you reckon, Harry? Isn't that exactly, that's the type of leadership we want from our Minister for Health? Oh, yeah. Having Twitter fights. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, look, I think we uh, we know Donnelly doesn't necessarily perhaps have the best judgment in his messaging at this point in his career. Um, and it's not like it's always just damage control isn't it it's always the doubling down and not taking it away and thinking about it and what can we do better from these conversations it's always the defensiveness i think has always been there and it's a shame to see that again when you have particularly where you have hey these are real people's lives we're talking about that are being negatively affected by this and there's just no capacity and i think it's not look it's not just stephen donnelly we've seen this with other should we say senior members of the hse Mm -hmm. and uh, associated department recently that there is just no willingness to take accountability for the problems that are being caused really well put because we saw it this week with robert watt when he when he when he was asked would he take the opportunity to apologize he literally went oh i think i think members of our team have apologized to the families for for you know and these were families that they were keeping dossiers on illegally for um and he was you know and he pure simply just would not even take the opportunity to make a public apology it would not have it would not have demeaned uh, his office or his standing at all indeed it might have actually enhanced his reputation should he have done so um i found that quite thing another quick one um just just to i remember a couple of years ago when the greens went into government and they talked about cost rental and 
and I said, well, you know, it's not actually cost rental. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's private rental with a bit of a discount. And I got absolutely berated telling me I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. Um, and then we see this week where there are cost rental units where you have to be, you know, if you want to afford the rent, you need to be on a salary of over 75,000. Uh, these are cost rental is supposed to be available for, for, for people on average wages to pay affordable rents. Uh, and we've seen, uh, the, to to quote the article in the journal, it wasn't cost rental as how it was put. It was market rents with at least a discount of 25% on what the market was paying. Now, that's exactly what I warned against a couple of years ago. And I'm not bigging it up myself. I'm just simply saying that if you're going to have cost rental, you look at the Vienna model. You don't look at um, some sort of market incentive thing where you say, well, we'll get, we'll pay full whack for a private developer to, to deliver these and then we'll charge rents and we'll go with what, whatever the average is in the area and we'll reduce it by 25%. Is it is it a step up from paying private rental? Of course it is. That there's a bit of and there's some security of tenure. All of that. I'm not knocking it, but don't go around telling me you have the Vienna model cost rental. You simply don't. And um, I was really, you know, I was taken aback by the people who really defended this to the hilt a couple of years ago. But now we're seeing as the as the units become available, the the people who want who are supposed to inhabit them. You know, you need to be earning serious wages beyond the average wage, beyond the average industrial wage in Dublin. And certainly, you know, you, you wouldn't be getting away with it. And, let, and you probably need some form of rent assistance or, or HAP payment just to just to bridge that gap. That's not what social and affordable housing is supposed to be. And it's certainly not what cost rental is meant to be. Um, Harry, I've got one thing I want to put to you uh, because it's something that has been bothering me now. Uh, let's let's go back in the time machine to post crash, well pre crash and post crash, and the media decided that we were going to champion the problems between public sector pay and private sector pay, and it was the you know the big issue today how they were how them ones are getting more than them ones, and these ones are getting more, and now we've seen that flaring up again, whereby it was um, miss misconstrued by um by Dave McWilliams in the in the Irish Times and I saw Kieran Nugent um, and Laura Brambrick actual working economists take his his arguments apart but we have also seen huge pushes to say oh you know now is not the time to increase the minimum wage uh, now is not the time to move towards a living wage and uh, sick pay this was the this was the headline in RTE staff are looking at paid sick leave as additional holiday pay it has really come full circle again. We're back at this. Um, we want poverty wages in a booming economy, Harry. Um, and we're going to, the, there's a lot of coverage of it. Yeah, well, this is something I'll never understand. It's like, what is the point of a good economy if people aren't going to like directly, tangibly benefit from it? It kind of undermines the whole purpose, right? The whole idea behind economic growth and the capitalist model is people earn more money, they have better jobs, they have better working conditions. And it's just bizarre to me that, well, it's not, <laughs> well, somebody who's spent all their time in college fucking studying Marx out of, no, not out of choice either. Um, you have this complete disconnect, as you say, between what we're supposed to be seeing as good and then the impact this is having on people. And this is when we talk about, and we'll talk about this this more about, I think, people's disillusion with politics and people increasingly, the sense, I, I think it is a sense in a large extent, people are increasingly drifting towards extremes and so on. Um, 
well, not, well, I say it's a sentence in Ireland. I mean, in other countries, obviously, it's much less of a sentence, much, much more concrete. Um, I think this is a large part of it. Is like, oh, this is this is this is everything working as it should, and people being like, hey, well, this 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 sucks. Go back to what you're saying. Housing is still unaffordable for people. We're talking about um, again. This is not the time to increase people's working conditions. There are certain sectors that are continuing to have substantial layoffs um, going on throughout this period. Um, and it sort of makes the whole – it just brings into question. It's like, okay, what are we doing here? This is what's supposed to be happening. Everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Everything is supposed to be going well. But we're not talking about improving people's like day-to-day material conditions as a result of it. Things are expensive. People need more money. People want more money. Um, people are being asked to work more. This – but they're not seeing any reward for it. And like, what's the point of contributing to this? And it, it does come back in a way to obviously the way that we measure economic growth is done in a very specific manner and done for a very specific direction and to look at very specific aspects of that. But there's no sense that this is really benefiting people. And I think this is part of a, a problem. It's like you can point at numbers and you can point at growth and these things are true. But people are still going to look at the things in front of them and say, hey, this isn't this isn't working for me. And when you aren't able to do that, when you aren't able to give people benefits in a way that they immediately see and are immediately tangible to them and make a difference to people who might be struggling day to day for whatever reason, whether that be somebody who you know doesn't have a particularly high income, whether that be somebody who has a mortgage and debts and so on that they need to service to continue to to um, to continue to live comfortably, which is a good thing. People should be able to live comfortably. Um, that's that's where all of this kind of stops making sense, you know. You've and actually you've nailed it, by the way, because we measure GDP uh, and we measure these these. We do also have the 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 GINI um, index, which is also imperfect. But one of the you know one of the really good things that um, people more and more economists are talking about is showing that people's ability to get out and 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 buy a pizza or have a have an evening out or or you know live just live is is actually less than it was post crash so we've so it, so for all of our economic miracle and our recovery the average person isn't any better off than they were a decade ago and in fact and, and sadly income market income inequality has only widened and it's it's you know the only time and it, this is where covid was an anomaly income inequality reduced during COVID because when we gave people the PUP, the 350, it turned out actually it, it, it bridged a bit of a gap for people and it showed then that actually, you know, this idea of giving someone 186 quid a week or whatever it was or whatever, they're, they're, maybe it was a carer's allowance and people were getting worse and then they bring them, they put everybody to 350 and then they cut it back down and inequality starts to grow again and this, as we say, is at a time during re- of record economic growth it won't last forever because because ultimately, financial capital will move on. It will find the next link in the chain. It will go there, and it will it will benefit from whatever other other tax avoidance network is set up, or other you know intellectual property scheme is is developed. It won't stay here forever. And for not making people's lives tangibly better now, what is the point in 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 going around and saying we are the Irish economic miracle? Um, Constant Gordiev says it all the time. Don't look at that. He says, go outside and go for a walk. Look at people, how they, what bags they're carrying, what retail units are open. Are, are they open? Are the windows clean? Are there, are, there, are there empty units? Are people's heads held high? Are people, you know, you can you can see more in behavioral economics now than you can in the GDP um, reading. And he's, he's quite right about that. And it worries me. Um, 
I don't. I do want to move on, but I do think it's something to keep an eye on: is the amount of coverage that this idea of poverty wages have to come back and, or not even come back. We need to. We need to maintain it for competitiveness. This. This has certainly come back on the agenda, and it's. It's really, really worrying me. Um, I do obviously like to do just before we get to your poll analysis. Uh, back to I started last week doing a bit of a, what we're calling cork watch here now. So, um, I find it uh, absolutely abhorrent yet again. That um, and yet Stormont is up and running. We should have mentioned that Michelle O'Neill is taking her seat as the first minister, and that is a significant moment. But if if it's not on her first order of business for her government to fund the Cork, um, what is it, entertainment centre or something they're building instead of the Irish government having to plug the gap in in their funding, that is up to them. They need to deal with their own problems, stand on their own feet. I'm sick of them coming cap in hand to our government looking for money. Harry, I know you agree with me, even though if you're staying quiet for some reason. Um, just I, know, my, my views on the Cork Event Centre are just too strong to broadcast, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, he, <laughs> it, did, it, he, he did do a two-minute tirade. I took it out. I just didn't want <laughs> us to get get done for defamation. Um, no, let, look, let just... Uh, so, yeah, I do think it's a significant moment that Michelle O'Neill is First Minister. It's absolutely um, something that, that is, uh, was unthinkable only, you know, a decade ago, a few years ago, and certainly um, growing up, it was something that was was not supposed to happen because that's how the the North was actually, the North was formed as a, as a, as a state for, as, as, you know, one side would be in supremacy forever. And now today is a, is a significant day. So, so um, fingers crossed, it actually has tangible results for the people in the North who, who are suffering some of the worst rates of poverty in the uh, UK's um, analysis. And that's certainly a big problem and big challenges ahead for them. So wish them well there. Um, the one thing, um, Harry, though, we need to talk about is, and just to let listeners know, we will be joined by Kevin Cunningham from Ireland Thinks, uh, the man behind Ireland Thinks, the poll. Uh, so he will be joining us to give us his two cents on on some of the controversy that you may have seen over the last couple of days, particularly when it comes to polling companies and questions around immigration and some levels of criminality. So you'll you'll hear that as well. But before we get to that, Harry, you did your first big dive of 2024 into the polls. So before, um, look, that's, the link will be in the, in the pod, so you should read it and check it out. But Harry, give us your overall, your sort of, um, your synopsis, if you wouldn't mind, of what the polls are telling you in terms of the trends and, uh, and, should, uh, and, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to preempt it and say, the one thing you did say is, if I was the government, I might be tempted to go early. Yeah, well, look, I'll, I'll come to that first because, you know, I've, I've been on this podcast several times and said that I think the government's going to stay at its term because that gives it the best chance of, you know, something changing and being able to hold power. Um, and they would hold on until kind of the last minute in the hope that something like that would, would happen. But we've had a poll and now, obviously, look, it's one poll. Um, it's so... This could all be moot in a, in a month or two's time when it comes out, if that gets proven to be an outlier. Um, but we've had a very bad poll for Sinn Féin, um, the Red Sea poll that just came out at the end of January. Uh, had them on 25%. That's their lowest score since, I think, shortly after the election. I don't have the, I don't have the exact uh, date to hand, but it's their worst result in a pretty long time. Um, and I mean, this was kind of one of those ones where it's like in a similar way to when we discussed when Senegal dipped below twenty percent. Um, while that could change, it's a still a pretty significant um, landmark, I suppose, that 
things could get to a position where that is a plausible, even through a polling error, a normal polling error, is is a plausible outcome. And it does come off the back of what has been a, a consistent, slow, downward trend in Sinn Féin support. That trend has been uneven. It has like gone up and down as it's sort of moved. But if you go back to, I think, at the middle of 2022 was when they peaked. Now we're at the start of 2024. Since then, if you look at the trend line, it's overall um, negative for Sinn Féin. And that's the kind of point where I think you'll start having discussions in government about, do we want to go early? Like, if we see this number replicated, hey, we have a much, much better chance of continuing if Sinn Féin are at 25% versus if Sinn Féin are at 30%. Um, and you'll see that as well. I think that pressure, not just from the strategic level, but I think you'll see a lot of individuals who are thinking, well, my seat might be on the line now. Hey, I have a much better chance of defending my seat if Sinn Féin's polling numbers are worse, particularly in Dublin. It was a very poor poll for them in Dublin. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is the kind of situation where we could see that change and where you, you know, what you've been saying about an early election could well turn out to be right. Uh, I do, don't think that decision will be made immediately. I think there will be a desire to see more um, information. I think those discussions themselves will take a long time and election doesn't just get, well, normally, under normal circumstances, an election doesn't get called at extremely short notice. There will be a process that the government will go through to discuss what it wants to do. And then obviously there will be sort of the administrative side of that as well. Um, but I definitely think if we see another poll or two with Sinn Féin kind of in the mid-20s as opposed to in the you know low 30s, that's where it will become very, very tempting to say, look, even if we can't maintain this government, um, we can put Sinn Féin in a position where they can't form a government and it will fall to us to then form one with the current setup plus independence or whoever else we can get on board. So I do think that this kind of thing will change, like has the potential to change those dynamics significantly. Um, even if the government parties themselves support is still about where it was, it, they are now in a position where they would have a, an advantage in government formation over Sinn Féin uh, on these numbers. And that's that's quite significant because that hasn't necessarily been the case um, for a while. Um, and I think that sort of we've hit kind of what is the bottom of a trend mm. and whether or not it goes up or down from here remains to be seen. But this is going to be very tempting. Now, I will say on the flip side, if it does continue and there continues to be downward pressure, the government might want to hold off for as long as possible to see if that line continues. But right now, yeah, I think the worst Sinn Féin do in the polls, and this is not, not a highly in-depth observation, but the much more likely we are to have an early election. Yeah, I just look at it and I, I, I've seen the trend line that you have on your piece and it shows from, I think it's January 2023, the, you know, there's a few little peaks, but it's mostly, it's been a downward trend now and there's no, there's no looking away from it. And I think when you said, you know, they're back to where they were around April 2020, I think is somewhere, somewhere in that window, you know, and it is, if you were sitting there and you were um, Leo Varadkar, for example, you know, he didn't think he'd be going into this government. He thought he thought that that they'd lost the last election, which they had, and and now and now he's you know now they're in their third term in government, and they're actually faced with a possible opportunity of going again. So I would I would imagine the temptation there is huge, even if they even if they were to go in, you know I've even heard suggestions going they would be so open to it that they'd be willing to give Eamon Ryan a whirl in the big chair, you know this kind of um, this kind of stuff of, of like as if we should be just passing hats around where we dissolve um because you know every time they do this someone has to go off and dissolve the government and get their seals of government and you know a whole new government is effectively formed it's not a rotating t-shock despite that's how it was it was framed but nonetheless i just find the other thing that that was really interesting to me was uh, and you've you've 
to give you more credit, you've been pointing this out for a while that um, that when Sinn Féin were eating votes, they weren't necessarily eating into the votes of some of the the, the harder left, as we would call them. Uh, and now we've seen Sinn Féin leaking votes. They're not giving. They're, there's no. Um, there's no votes going back the other way as well. And that, as someone who who would like to see a broad left coalition, to, from my point of view, that's worrying. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, there's the flip side of that kind of sort of resilience we saw to an extent, um, right? Particularly in, in mostly in Dublin. Now, outside of Dublin, the dynamics were a little different. But again, the, the left wing vote is at its highest in Dublin. That's that's not really disputable. Um, the, yeah, the the PPP and so on vote kind of held up reasonably well, even when Sinn Fein were surging. Um, but then the, the yeah the flip side of that is now that they're declining, we're not really seeing a commensurate increase for PPP, which is is actually a, a significant problem given that they um, were, given the way first preference vote dynamics worked out last time, they were highly reliant on Sinn Féin transfers in a lot of in a lot of constituencies with, with a few exceptions. Um, so yeah, they haven't really experienced that downward pressure, which is good, but that means that they're not really benefiting from it. And there's a, a question to be asked about, you know, at what point does the left in this country really start taking some of that space. We've seen it to an extent. You could argue that the SDs have probably taken a little bit of Sinn Féin's vote and certainly a chunk of the Greens. Um, when you look at their numbers in Dublin in particular, they're actually very high at the moment. I think it's around 13% in the last poll, which is really high for the SOC Dems. Um, but we haven't seen other parties on the left really benefit all that much. And look, there's this, there's reasons we can go into that of, uh, you know, why, why isn't this working? What's the missing link in the appeal? What's the strategy here? Which is, is beyond me, to be honest with you. Um, I don't know necessarily what the solution is. I've been involved in left-wing politics for a long time. And if, if I figured out a way to make it work, uh, we'd be in a much better place than we are, but I have not. So I'm not going to pretend that I know the answer to this, but it is, it does continue to be a challenge. And I think what we're, what we're seeing is, and this is my it's a theory. I don't know if this is true because it can't be. I don't think there's a way to 100% substantiate this. But when I look at like what's happening now, I see that we have a vote, a chunk of people who kind of moved over to Sinn Féin, particularly from Finna Fall. Um, and I think those are kind of the loosest Sinn Féin voters. And I think those are the kind of people who are probably moving away from them. Again, some, of the, some, of them some of them might be going home, as they say. I think there's a degree of that. And I also think some of them are moving towards independent candidates out of, well, I've tried Finna Fall, that didn't work. I won't try Finna Gale because, you know, no, yeah. we can't do that. That's bad. Uh, we tried Sinn Féin. They weren't what I wanted either. So I'm just going to vote for my, you know, local sort of centre-right or aligned independent who will look after my interests. And I think that's possibly something that need, that should be explored can, more. I'd can, love to can, see more on kind of what people's motivation in vote swapping is. Because to me, it seems not so much like, oh, Sinn Féin are losing their core vote, but the downward trend is like these are people that 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 turn after the election moved away, particularly from Finna Fall, to support them. The, the, the one thing, and because I can hear Martin's voice in my head, because he will he he'll be screaming now that he thinks when the election is called, that the momentum will come to Sinn Fein, and then they will they will inevitably you know do a lot better. And I will say, which was quite funny when you think about it in in hindsight, every every election that we've we've been around and alive for, par, par, um, with, with the exception of 2020 we always had this this thing where they would say you know um Sinn Féin are polling at x but they always they always underperform at the election that was always the 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 you know the media narrative was was that the, and it, it actually it came to fruition it was so crystal clear in 2020 because at the time you might recall 
they were polling somewhere around 18 to 20 percent which was similar to where Fianna Fáil were but yes the the media narrative continued to be that it was it was that it was a two horse race between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. and you know to the to the extent where Mary Lou Macdonald wasn't even invited to leaders debates at the time because they weren't the vote wasn't taken as as to be solid enough now we we're, we're we're facing into this. I think as we as we face into the the locals and the Europeans, we may get a sense of what Sinn Fein's base is before there's a general. Because I do I do think there'll be a general, but I but I do think we might get a sense of what the base is. I'm more worrying based on some of the data you've put together as well. I see in terms of where far right votes are going. We're probably going to get a few far right local election candidates that are going to going to get garner a few seats, Harry. Yeah, so there's a couple of things in there. Um, so firstly, in terms of, of the polling and the campaign period on the last election, um, true, but the polls that took place directly before the election did actually, I think even some of them slightly overestimate Sinn Féin's um, votes. So I think what happened there wasn't so much a polling error as much as there was a genuinely very late swing in voting preferences towards Sinn Féin. And there's absolutely no reason to say that the same could not happen again. Like Martin might be absolutely correct on that that when we get down to brass tacks and suddenly people are like, oh, I've got to cast my vote in two weeks, people do say, well, Sinn Féin represent the best chance of getting this government out, or actually, you know, I am dissatisfied with things. I am going to vote for Sinn Féin. That's, I think, mm-hmm. broadly what we saw last time around. There's no reason that can't happen. Uh, and that is the risk of the government calling an election because they think Sinn Féin are doing badly, is that that turns out to be not the case, turns out to be where people are right now, but the campaign kind of Phil's goal. changes people's minds. In terms of locals and Europeans, true to an extent, and they are, I think, they will reveal some information. Um, it's very difficult to draw conclusions from a general, from either of those European elections in particular tend to, I don't want to say people don't take them seriously, people tend to take more risks with their vote, if that makes sense, in European elections. And we've seen that with the relative overperformance of left-wing candidates in European elections historically. Um, like, if you were to run a, you know, there's not a lot of seats in Dublin. Oh, sorry, there's not, not every constituency in Dublin would elect somebody like a Claire Daly or Joe Higgins in a Dáil election, but they're much, much broader appeal in a uh, European context, because people are willing to take that risk, because people, I think, see it as a little bit more distant. And I think that's something the far right have tried to exploit as well, um, not just in Ireland, but in general. You do see the European elections have been a precursor there, because it's like, oh, send us to Europe, we're going to cause some hassle. And it's like, yeah, that might not directly impact me, so I'm, I'm happy to sort of vote more towards the um, political, the, these ends of the political spectrum. And that's, that, that can be a good thing, a bad thing. Obviously, um, I think it's great that you know, left-wing candidates overperform there. I think it's awful I, that right-wing I, candidates overperform I, I, there. I, I, we, had, we interviewed Luke Ming, Ming Flanagan the other day. We, we interviewed Luke Ming Flanagan the other day, and I have no, I've no qualms saying, I hope he gets in a third time. None. <laughs> you know, so um, he is a maverick, though. His face doesn't fit in, in many other places, you know? No, and and that's it, because it's like, you, you know, obviously we know he can win a doll seat, but could he win a doll seat in every constituency in that Mm. vast Midlands Northwest area, no. But a European seat is is a different situation. Local similar, you see like dynamics change, personalities which are already important become much more important. You do see independents tend to perform, and then we obviously see a lot of those independents then try to run one well, a lot, but we 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 know historically a number of high performing independents on local councils will then try to run for the doll and fall flat on their faces because mm-hmm. they don't have the geographic support base. So yes, they'll be instructive. I don't think they'll necessarily be like 
as representative as people think they are, but it is a good sense of like, are people, who are people mad at and where are people's support going? Um, and obviously things can change a lot. Look, we saw Sinn Féin get obliterated um, in a set of local elections and then completely turn things around in a few years. Um, so yeah, tough to sort of draw the one-to-one there, mm. but uh, certainly, I think it will certainly reveal um, a, bit, a bit about sentiment. And in terms of the far right, look, are far right people going to win council seats? Probably. Uh, are there far right people who already hold council seats in this country? Yeah, 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 there are. And I, I think that's a really important thing to note is that while it's scary and bad, it's also not like new. I think there's just a group of people who are more explicit about it. But generally, what we've seen is the people who are super explicit about it tend not to do very well. So that's going to be interesting. And I think we're probably more likely to see a continuation of the same thing. Like you'll see independents who will have far-right sympathies or views, I think you'll see more of those type of people elected off the back of other issues um, rather than people who run purely as, I am the racist local councillor, yeah. uh, win. And I think you'll probably see more independents benefit from this than the, I hesitate to call them organized, but let's call them registered um, far-right parties uh, who there's there's very little, uh, and maybe we'll touch on this a bit later, but like even within the talk of the far-right surge, like realistically, the, all those parties combined, even in this current environment, uh, are like polling at like 1%, which is about what they got in the last general election. So it's not like those groups have suddenly garnered a massive amount of sympathy like you know your irish freedom party your national party whatever renewer are called these days and so on and that's i think that's genuinely because they're really weird and unpleasant people to deal with yeah um i think it's a really good point and i think also but you're also right to say that there's there's and again we'll talk to it we'll talk to kevin a bit about this but there's also some parts of the major parties that actually have elements of that within them so you know it's it's a warm enough it's a warm enough if you can get a seat uh, your views will be tolerated because it's a numbers game ultimately for many of these. Maybe we'll maybe we'll just go to to Kevin next actually, and just we'll 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 leave it there, folks. But I will say thanks to Harry so much for his time this morning. Um, I think you can all agree it would be much better without Martin. Um, and we could just get uh we could just bring things forward. We 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 could have Harry on on a full time basis, but he's he keeps rebutting, rebuffing me. But thanks so much for 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 joining me, Harry. And we will go to the conversation with um Ireland thinks Kevin Cunningham now. Tomorrow. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Gross. We are now joined on the line by one of the well, the man behind Ireland thinks, uh, um, Kevin Cunningham, who's no stranger to the Tortoise Shack and indeed the Echo Chamber podcast, and uh, and Harry, um, as our resident pollster, as Mister Ireland, Ireland's elections projections, we were looking with some dismay at some of the questions that were being asked and and Kevin has kindly agreed to come on and have a have a conversation with so and I can't say fairer than that Kev how are you doing and thanks for coming on uh no problem Tony yeah no great to be on and, and nice to see Harry as well. Um, listen, I just want can you can you start us off with 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 the with what you believe the logic behind these this this polling and I what I identified when I said to you in cor- correspondence earlier that I do feel there's a trend pushing um, us towards these immigration questions that that I'm uncomfortable with. What's what what? Give me your your take as the actual as an actual pollster himself. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's a multifaceted question, I guess. So uh, I'd, I'd love to break it down into different bits. Uh, obviously, like, you know, you have to poll whatever is salient just from the get-go. And there are certain issues that some people like and certain issues that other people don't like. That 
that always happens. And for example, last month did a question on um, the prospect of house prices falling. And there was a lot of opposition amongst relatively wealthy people, uh, in particular around that poll. Uh, there's other questions we do on like genocide in relation to Israel and Gaza and stuff. And there's the immigration question. I would say 80% of the time, um, public opinion tends to favour the populace, obviously, and the populace tends to be uh, on the left, I would say. On the issue of immigration, it's not the case, uh, obviously. Um, and yet there are lots of questions. I think the question on whether there has been too many immigrants or refugees and all that sort of stuff, I feel like that question itself is kind of done uh, in some respect. Um, and I think it's in a, at a stage where the conversation itself on immigration, much as, you know, from a tactical perspective, I think from the left perspective, having the conversation is not is not good because the conversation is basically, you know, a one could describe it as a racist conversation, I'll say. Um, but where that conversation probably needs to go uh, eventually is in relation to integration policy. Uh, just speaking as an academic, having, you know, my PhD would have been in this sort of area, politicization, depoliticization of immigration. It seems like the way in which it, it moves on is through integration policy. And that is where the questions I think uh, should be, or at least are heading, at least from my perspective. There are questions, obviously, you know, there's a question that we did uh, last month in relation to arson uh, attacks. Uh, now, my sense is that, you know, to some extent, on the left, one could view everything uh, in a negative perspective. But when there are majorities in your favour, it's sometimes it's sometimes good to have a question that highlights those majorities, the highlighting the fact that most people are opposed to these arsonists. So that kind of quells perhaps uh, a narrative that exists where oh these arsonists are, are are happening, but but nothing's really there's no litigation of those arsonists. The, the conversation seems to be oh we need to um, uh, accede to their to their demands and stuff like that. But uh, I think in relation to those questions, I don't necessarily think that they're particularly egregious because they do highlight where the country is, not just from a negative perception in relation to immigration, which which often is the case, but also in relation to, uh, you know, that people are drawing the line on that issue. Uh, that said, I was surprised how many people actually supported uh, the arsonists. Uh, it was slightly larger than I, I actually and, this is the, and, and And not only that, and Harry, I might ask you on this, because some of the parts of it, as we've seen, where uh, polls are used and, and then they, when, when they're framed and when they, when they arrive on our newspaper headlines, um, they come out and we've, we, we discover that, you know, they've been used then as right-wing talking points, as far-right talking talking points, and and they are weaponized then, and and I find you know that's this is where I'm, I'm I understand Kevin saying go moving on towards the conversation towards integration, but we're not that's that's not the I don't think that's the 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 basis of of when it hits the the, the head the headlines. Yeah, and look, I appreciate um, you know. Kevin's position, I appreciate any polling company is in a position where you're doing things, you know, you're commissioned to do things and so on. I don't think, I want to be very clear, I don't think this is a reflection on um, yourself or on Ireland thinks or anything like that. Um, but yeah, wh when you have these questions, and it's, it's like you say yourself, while, you know, you're looking for a particular response, there's also a particular kind of broader narrative around this that we've seen in the media, and it's not been particularly sympathetic towards um towards refugees towards migrants over the over the while when i look at the uh, you know um 
so say, Red Sea's interpretation of things and Richard Colville's writings, um, in his analysis of the polls that they've done around uh, migrants, there's been an awful lot of um, pushing of the idea that, well, there is an anti-migrant sentiment and this is having a very immediate impact on politics, which I think, as we'll talk about later, I, I don't think that linkage is as clear as, he's, as he makes it. But I think the problem that I have, and I think a lot of people on the left have, with the questions like that um, and that are... I think that go a little bit beyond what we would consider to be reasonable is there's a very direct question there of like essentially criminal activity and intimidation and saying that, oh, you know, we found that X percent of people are in favor of this or X percent of people are opposed to this. I, I struggle to see the value in something like that. And I, not just necessarily even from a polling perspective, but also from a media perspective of whoever's then carrying the analysis and the commentary around that poll. Um, that's thing they're talking about, and they're going to talk about the level of support something like this has. They're going to be engaging in that conversation. I don't think that's a productive conversation because at the end of the day, what you have is a group of vulnerable people who are um, being victimized and being you know, having their accommodation burned down or being intimidated. And in some cases, we've seen, obviously, not directly related to that, assaulted. Um, and it's all part of that broader picture. And I don't think you can just kind of split something out from that and say, well, you know, we're just sort of testing what the temperature is on whether or not people are racist, basically. Um, and I think the, the, the problem is not so much within the poll itself in isolation, but within the broader context of the media coverage of this, within the broader context of the actual real-world effects that are being had on refugees and migrants, um, continuing to keep this as a conversation, continuing to even pose the question of whether or not this is legitimate or whether or not this has public support has knock-on effects beyond that. And again, I don't think that's necessarily down to the to the polling companies. I don't think that's a decision you know Ireland thinks have made to engage in this. But when the people who are commissioning the polls, who are writing the questions and are going to be writing the headlines behind it, that's what we've kind of seen as the consistent pattern of behaviour. And I think that's why people feel, as you put it, Kevin, that it might be egregious, um, is because they feel it gives support and cover and could potentially provide legitimacy. As you said, the results of people supporting it were higher than you, you may have expected. Um, and the question is, is like, how much does asking that question actually have an influence on those views and how much does having that conversation continue to happen in the media and continue to have um, the side of that that is in favor of these attacks broadcast? Uh, and I think that's kind of where people like myself have, a, have an issue with questions like this and consider this to be like a really, uh, for me, it's a low point, to be honest with you, that something so directly would get would get asked. And again, I understand, you know, how how polling works i understand that's not a decision you're necessarily making um and i don't expect you to turn around here you know and be like well uh you know uh to sort of condemn all the things that are happening because i understand your position but it is really um yeah when you put it in the broader context i think that's why people find it worrying it's not so much oh the question itself is being asked it's all of the things that surround that and how that question fits into the broader thing that's happening kevin yeah no i mean look i I wouldn't uh, have any issue really with what, what Harry said. I think they're all very well made points, uh, absolutely. And and you know this is something that certainly weighs on me quite considerably. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And I'm quite conscious as well of the narrative that it, it it projects. I think in particular, probably the question that has, you know, if there was a question that probably has had a little bit more uh, impact, it was it is probably the one which is about 
you know, whether there's been too many refugees or otherwise, the ones that we've done. Now, the, there was a very strong result from Red Sea in that in that particular area about too many immigrants. Mm-hmm. I think it was was their question, which was like seventy percent, which was very high. Uh, it must be said. Uh, I get the arson thing. I feel like it would definitely be a risk, but I feel like maybe in my interpretation of how narratives develop around issues, if there is a majority in favour of something, then people seem to be. Uh, people seem to take that as red, whereas if the majority goes the other way, even how the question is phrased, it kind of pushes, it It, it, it should in theory, and most of the time does push back. And that's just sort of, I guess, the way I was thinking about the the arson one in particular. But yeah, obviously, so So, you know, so, so just, ex- just want to explore that for a moment. So you're, you're saying that you think there's a benefit in knowing how where we stand is that the the logic that you're saying that there's a benefit of knowing you know as you as, as you put the challenge well i won't say you, you didn't use the word challenge but you put it from the left's perspective you know there, there's a benefit in knowing the size of the the issue particularly when it comes to you know the level of support for say what is criminality in, in a sense and also the level of of pushback against the the like it has been, of course, there's been a spike in immigration. When you take in a hundred thousand Ukrainians, there's there's going to be a spike in immigration. Um, but but again, uh, so so you think that that's a, of benefit? Yet I would I would argue that it's also of benefit to to the government who 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 don't want to deal with the actual underlying issues of inequality and a housing crisis. And I want to make one final point: the seven hundred and forty people on the streets of Dublin, international protection asylum seekers that can't get accommodation. And many of these buildings that have been burnt down would be accommodating some of these. So there is direct impacts if, if it's not on the three of us. It's certainly on people on the streets of Dublin um, last night and tonight. Um, now, I guess just to narrow it down to make sure that we're clear, like what I'm trying to say, it's just it's that I feel like if there's a majority that shows that people are opposed to um, the, arson, the arson attacks themselves, I think that's a positive thing to convey in some respect, assuming we are in this conversation all opposed to those arson tax, which, which we are. And I think it's, it's a positive thing to convey that, that opposition, you know? Um, I think that's, that, I think that's essentially it. Um, um, just Harry, can I ask just as, as watching these trends and we've seen these culture war issues come more and more into polling. Um, and I understand I can, you know, and again, this sounds like a, we're, I'm having a go at you, Kevin. I'm not, as Harry points out, you're doing, you're, well, you're, doing, you're doing, you're doing, you're doing the, but the, I'm like, these are, these are worth, worth discussing, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not, um, but, but, not infallible. But, but, but when we look at these topics, Harry, as, the, as they've been brought in, have, have we been, have, the, have you seen any useful um, applications of the, of the data as opposed to, I'm going to say it, and this is not, again, a dig at Kevin, a weaponization of the data. Is there, you know, uh, that's my concern. There's a gap between where one side will weaponize and the other side may actually find it useful and, and, and develop strategies to, to, to act in, to, to lessen these, these, uh, these polarizations. Well, um, from a perspective of the government, I, it's tough to say that they have done much positive off the back of this. Um, I think the, whatever you feel about migration, whether you're, and I think particularly if you're somebody like myself, who would very much be on the side of being pro-migration. I think everybody here is, I would like to think, uh, doesn't have an issue with with refugees and migrants. Um, Like a lot of these problems, 
ultimately stem from the way it's been mishandled by the government. Um, and I think people on the you know on the right, as we know, have their interpretation of what that means. But I think people on the left also are very strongly opposed to how the government has handled it for very, very different reasons and much more valid reasons. And I don't know if polling and if what we've seen as, as the sentiment expressed in that has necessarily influenced the government's approach um, in a positive way. I think what we've seen is uh, more rhetoric towards um, reducing numbers. I think we've seen the failure of government parties to address individuals within them who have come out very strongly in a right-wing view on um, migration. We've seen um, proposals now, I think, for cutbacks in the benefits being given to um, people from Ukraine uh, coming 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 here who were given um sort of a preferential treatment, which is a good thing, by the way, and that preferential treatment, in my view, should have been extended to be extended to everyone, um, but that's being cut back now. Um, so I think it's difficult to, and I, again, I do I do get where Kevin is coming from, and this is, I think, ideally what you would want to happen, right? And ideally what I think we would all want to happen is people see this and sort of it, who have the power to change things, but those groups, and the sorry, the government and the state doesn't seem to be acting that way. Like, it feels like they're trying to essentially remove criticism of themselves by leaning more in a right-wing direction on um, on migration and trying to, like, I think we'll probably discuss this more, trying to deflect the uh, blame on Sinn Féin about a lot of it, um, obviously. Um, so yeah, I, I, no, I, do, I do appreciate that point, and I do think it's a fair thing, and I think that's kind of uh, the, I get that as a goal, but I'm, I'm not sure that what we're seeing is necessarily reflecting that in terms of the government and the state's behaviour towards um, refugees and migrants. And I do think, and this, this is interesting going back to what Kevin said before about um, sort of integration and future-looking policy, and it would actually be good to see more polling on this, because we did see a little bit of that, and while obviously the main headline from the Red, Red Sea was about them asking um, you know, about, yeah, do, do have we taken too many refugees? Um, they also did have a question about um, where refugees should be housed. And the general conclusion from that is that Irish people have absolutely no idea what they want on the issue because it was pretty much divided roughly into a third between current system of direct provision, uh, direct housing, and I don't know. Um, so it's interesting that, and particularly the amount of don't knows on that question, there's an awful lot to be done and that does show that there's an awful lot of space to be won and opinion to be swayed in terms of how we actually handle people but that's not happening because the conversation that we're seeing um you know every day in the newspapers and on television and from politicians and from people of influence is about people coming here not what happens to them after they arrive here um so i do i do think that's a really interesting thing that kevin's raised there and i do think that that does show something really interesting but it just doesn't feel like the focus is on that at the moment from the people who control uh the levers of power as it were kevin, i'll give you go, yeah sorry, go I, ahead, Jack. I, I, I think harry yeah no i think harry's right i think uh, certainly at this point in time that isn't where the focus is uh, i think that's where it needs to go it needs to uh, more quickly get towards resolutions of some kind in relation to meeting and responding to these things. Otherwise, I think one of the things about Irish politics is for a long time, it hasn't had that same level of anti-immigrant sentiment uh, compared to other countries, but it has for a long time had more populist sentiment, so more sort of anti-system sentiment than other countries. And so I think for Ireland at this juncture, the risk is that that kind of populist sentiment, which is already happening, feeds more and more into the anti-immigration sentiment. Those two things consolidate and you end up with a very large support for sort of anti-immigration parties, which has happened in so many countries. 
And I think the resolution, the way to kind of, at least the way that seems that it is depoliticized, where it has depoliticized, is where the conversation has moved very quickly towards what actually to do about it, rather than to remain sort of fixed on, is this good or is this bad, for which that's just a very static position in politics, which tends to be beneficial for the radical right uh, to play on. And, you know, it's certainly a position which some people also on the progressive side like continuing having that conversation uh, about, you know, is this a good or bad thing, uh, refugees or whatever. But just to move it into the next kind of dimension, I think, is quite is quite critical at this point. Kevin, you've been very good with your time. I know you're under pressure, but I want to ask, just Harry touched on that point there. We will, and obviously we'll discuss it in more detail later. Um, but, but, but before you rush off, the idea then that this narrative that, you know, somehow this is a problem for Sinn Féin and not a whole, that's, that's surely you don't. Oh, yeah, very good question. Yeah, what, yeah. Do, what do you believe about, in terms of your, what the polling shows you? I've said I said this in loads. Like I, I published a report on behalf of the uh, European Council of Foreign Relations there last week, which was on the general dynamics of the rise of the radical right throughout Europe and how they predicted to do much better, or at least we predict them to do much better again in the next European elections, which is 2019. The reason I'm bringing this up is because, in general, what seems to happen in many countries is the initial outset, because of the fact that it wraps itself around populism, it initially. Uh, gains a foothold in sort of slightly more working class communities. I'm not going to say that it is all working class that sentiment because it isn't. It's 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 almost flat across the classes, but electorally it damages the left initially a little bit more. But over time, those parties seem to cannibalise the centre right or the right in the long run because you can see in many European countries the centre left has kind of recovered since that kind of 2016 nadir that it had. Uh, and it's the right in many countries that have basically disappeared in some countries, being taken over entirely by these parties, because there is a much closer connection between anti-immigration sentiment and sort of other sentiments on the right of the spectrum. So I think initially it is damaging Sinn Féin right now a little bit more than the other parties, a little bit more, not that much more. I think in the long run, the party that I would predict is probably under potentially the most uh, threat from this in the long, long run. It's probably Fianna Fáil because Fianna Fáil has the same sort of um, relationship with the with the kind of legacy Fianna Fáil independent candidates. You can see that connection between slightly more conservative, slightly more rural. Uh, and that's where this vote very much is in the long run. And I think that's probably what will invariably happen. I, you know, what normally will happen is that Sinn Féin will become a much more kind of progressively liberal party because that set of its vote, which is much bigger than than the kind of perhaps more conservative subset of its vote. Uh, eventually, that takes hold of the party, and eventually, that becomes what that party is, coalescing with the you know the the Labour Green Sock Dem sort of side of the electorate, I guess. But it at this moment in time, yeah, there is still probably more Sinn Fein voters, even still, uh, given the voting intention we have at the minute. Uh, which are more attracted by this particular prospect, but only marginally more, it must be said, than Fianna Fáil. Um, and so it's often characterized as being a sort of a working class thing. That's not really what it's about. Uh, there's other dynamics that are driving this. In Ireland, it's particularly interesting in some respect because Ireland is reflecting what we've seen in other countries where a kind of a, a younger cohort are more interested in this issue, um, balancing it out, whereas 
say in the UK, it's very much an older generation that is anti-immigrant and the, the age divide in the UK is very stark. But in, in Ireland, it's not like that. It's a little bit, Ireland's a little bit closer to like Romania and, and Poland, where you have Confederacia and Poland and AUR Romania, which are parties whose vote are, is um, entirely based on young men. Now, I'm not saying that it's all young men that are concerned with this, but it's much more of a mix of demographics uh, in Ireland than it is in, in sort of, let's say, the UK or whatever. And, and certainly the class thing's there, but... It's not. It's not the defining feature of this. Harry, uh, Harry, no I'll days. give you the last one before we let he- Kevin go. Will you just tell him why he's wrong about everything, please? Uh, no, every, everything yeah. he said there is completely <laughs> correct. Um, he's he's <laughs> absolutely spot on. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think Finnafall are, are the people who are going to have the biggest problem with this in the in the long run. I think there's there's data that indicates this as well. Again, when, as we spoke about the other week with the with the far right transfers and Finnafall being. Of the like established Main parties, the, the sort of largest recipient, yeah. So the sympathies are already there, um, and I think he's. Yeah, I think the the point about sort of where these votes are coming from, and it's sort of being sort of at the moment a primarily male, young, urban cohort is is very true. Um, yeah, no, I think Kevin's absolutely spot on on sort of the shape that we see around us at the moment. Well, look, Kevin, we'll, we'll let you go because we know you've got plenty on. So we really appreciate you taking the time to have to uh, join us on, on yeah, short always, notice. And Always like talking to you guys. And let's talk again soon, okay? Thanks very much. Will do, definitely. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. And I think that's where we leave it for this morning. Uh, thank you again to Harry McEvansonia of Irish Election Projections to for stepping up and helping me out because the other fellow couldn't get out of bed. Uh, I really appreciate Harry's time and his analysis as always. And do remember to check out his, his work. The link is in the podcast. And sincere thanks to Kevin Cunningham for joining us at short notice. And to discuss all things polling, Ireland thinks, and where he wants to see the conversation move on to. I really appreciate him giving us his time yet again. And finally, thanks to you for listening. Please tell people about us. Please let them know where to find us. Please like, share, recommend, send an old WhatsApp. It helps other people find us and it helps grow our audience. And hopefully, hopefully some of you will chip in and help keep the show on the road. Take care. Goodbye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Subscribe now on Pay.